Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Biz News Finance Friday webinar. Today, I've got Dawn Riddler, an independent financial planner who's based in Johannesburg with me, and also Lisa Siegel, who's also in Johannesburg, and Lisa is a specialist on global index tracking funds. So before we get to your questions, I would just like to ask Dawn first and then Lisa to just briefly sketch out your investment strategy. So Dawn's got quite an interesting background uh, in the sciences. So um, Dawn, perhaps you could tell uh, the attendees a bit about how you manage or how you advise people. Um, you know, uh, when you advise somebody, um, you have to know a lot about them. And, and not just where they are right now and what investments they've got right now and policies and life insurance policies, but you have to know what their dreams are and their aspirations and, and their expectations of the future, because that's the only way that, you know, you can really give advice is holistically to say, right, based on where you are and what you have and what you anticipate happening in the future, this is how we plan to, to go forward. So I, I like to take a very holistic view. I like to incorporate everything. Um, you know, I, I don't call myself an sort of investment specialist, even though that's my my big love. It's, you know, because that's the only way you can tailor make something so that somebody has even a hope of making those dreams come true. Thank you, Dawn. And uh, Lisa, if you could just tell us a bit about Gins Global. I mentioned in my newsletter earlier this week that I had first met your colleague, Anthony Ginsberg, actually 20 years ago, and he had uh, he had enough at a, a, a business he was working for in Cape Town and had decided to start his own business, which is now Gins Global. And I believe you have something like 85 billion rand of assets under management. Uh, well, we've got three different businesses, Dawn. So one is the local business here that I run, which is mutual funds. So they're the index trackers, which we are on different lists. So that's um, like the MSCI World global equity, U.S. equity, so that's mutual funds. Then we've listed about a year and a half ago on the London Stock Exchange and the extra um, Switzerland as well as the German exchange thematic ETFs. So that encompass the new world, so uh, uh, companies that are disrupting uh, the way things are done. So we've got three listed ETFs on the exchange. And then in the U.S., we also design index-linked annuities for big companies like Zurich, uh, ING, AIG, which predominantly is actually a lot of the money. It's their structured kind of products and the life insurance, um, which actually does very well. So there are three different businesses to our index tracker business or index-linked type of products. So um, thanks. You wrote a nice piece about Anthony, and it was true. We actually started here in 2001. So Anthony was at a big business and he wasn't happy with the performance of the active fund managers. And in those days, uh, index trackers were not very popular among even the sort of more established houses. So you've managed to turn this business into a global uh, entity, which is hugely impressive. Uh, are most of your clients South Africans? Uh, international, yeah, some South Africans, also international, all over the world. So I wanted to actually say a reason when we started the business, which is something you wouldn't really do, it was more altruistic, is to try and bring low-cost index tracking funds to South Africans who traditionally couldn't get into that arena. So it was to say, you know, the, the active fund managers here were charging a lot of money, they're underperforming the benchmark, and there wasn't any alternative for South Africans to have 
access to index tracking funds like obviously Bogle did with Vanguard, obviously with the iShares. So the business initially was started on an altruistic um, <laughs> level, not actually just for profit. And the reason why is that you can't hide your fees in index tracking and, you, and there isn't much money in it because you can actually, it's very transpar- transparent. You can see the difference between the fund and the index and the difference between those two is your fee. So I think that's why it wasn't started earlier in the 2000s. Um, there's not much, you can't hide with index tracking. In terms of and your can, fee and your performance, can you still make money as a as an as a passive index fund provider? Um, I think scale and size matter. So we actually use um, on the index side, it's different to active fund managers. Smaller fund managers are more nimble and they're more flexible and they don't have to own the market. Whereas an index tracker, you're getting mainly three big fund houses. So it's your Vanguard, which you've heard of, and um, it's got the biggest fund actually in the world, and then your Ashes, which is BlackRock. And then State Street. So what we do is we use State Street at the back end to do the index tracking. So similar to what Satrix do with BlackRock, scale and size in the index tracking world actually matter. So it's difficult to start your own index tracking doing an in-house capabilities because you don't necessarily have the scale. Okay. Well, thank you. And uh, do you want to just quickly talk us through some of these slides that you've got here? You um, mentioned that, that you've got a slide here, the massive rush to passive. Um, Dawn, are you finding a lot of your clients are wanting passive funds? Um, yes, uh, they they certainly are. And um, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship, I will freely admit that, um, with ETFs. Um, I am concerned, particularly in the States, that um, ETFs are actually starting to distort the market because they've become so popular. And it's become a matter of the tail wagging the dog rather than, you know, purely following what the market's doing, that they're actually becoming money uh, market makers um, purely because of the amount of new money that's um, flooding into the, these ETFs. Um, but having said that, they, you know, um, they form a, a very important part of most of my clients' portfolios. I think they're an excellent way, um, especially if you don't have the critical mass, to get an exposure to, you know, a, either a market or a part of a market or something like, say, say gold without having to physically do it. So, yes, they um, I find them they, they are really important, but they're not the be all and end all. They are inclined, um, particularly, I suppose, the South African ETFs to get a little bit of a, a blunt instrument. Um, they're, they're really great for people who are just starting off um, investing. They can get their feet wet. Um, without spending a huge amount of money, they can put their thousand rand a month or whatever else it is into into these investments. But you know, once you start looking, um, you know, you have to start balancing the portfolios and this kind of thing. And you, know, you don't want it to be pure equity because um, the risk of you know too much market volatility, especially if the clients sort of get into their fifties and this kind of thing. That um, ETFs then start to play a smaller role in the portfolio, even though they will always still be there. Thank you. Do you have a response to that, Lisa? Do you think that the, the world of ETFs has evolved and, and how, how do you make sure that you still find one that is low cost? I th- look, I think Dawn has said some very salient points. I think I don't think it's a debate between active and passive. I think both strategies should have a place in your portfolio. 
The only thing is, is finding, it's very hard to find an active fund manager that consistently outperforms the benchmark. So one year they might do well and the second year they don't. So in that case, we actually uh, believe in building a foundation for your uh, financial um, solutions. So the, the, the foundation would be your passive, your beta. So to, to, so like an MSCI world, which most of my big clients use, is the foundation. And over and above that, you can choose, if you can find one, an active fund manager that's more flexible in terms of changing the asset class. So it's just difficult. If you can look at the slides here, especially on a long term, so like a five to seven or 10 to 15 years, look at the 90% of Fund managers, U.S. fund managers are underperforming the benchmark. It's a lot. So can you find the 10%? And if you look at one year, say it's X that have outperformed, in the second or third year, is X still going to be outperforming the benchmark? They're not consistently outperforming the benchmark. Yes, they can, but are they going to be doing it every year? Those so are quite staggering figures. Yes. So for I me, I'm an evidence person I'm legal I like to know the evidence look at the numbers you know the Dawn, numbers speak for itself yeah um you know I think um you can actually get the best of both worlds because what we're talking about here is the the equity portion of a client's portfolio right um and certainly when it comes to the equity portion um ETFs are almost a, a no-brainer right and can form the sort of core of of a client's portfolio but Specifically in, you know, with, um, when you have to have more certainty in the capital and in these uncertain times, you have to have add the other asset classes and you have to have uh, an asset manager or, or be able to have somebody who constructs a portfolio around that, that um, equity. And I agree with you. You know, there are not a lot of um, equity asset managers that outperform the index, but the, you know, the secret source is the active management with the other asset classes that um, ETFs are no notoriously not as good at doing. You know, that if you want to buy some, you know, a balanced um, ETF, they usually aren't great. Thank you. Here's the first question. And it is actually, you touched on this earlier, Lisa, the Vanguard S&P 500. So Fred wants to know, how, right. what is the best way to invest in the S&P 500? Okay, so... There's two issues you've got to look at. For a the Vanguard S&P 500, you've got to look at where the domicile of the fund is. So people like think they look at the Vanguard S&P 500, I think maybe it's three or five basis points, which sounds very cheap, but it's actually only for U.S. investors because of the way it's structured from a tax point of view. You know, people also think you don't realize if you have an investment in your own name in a U.S. or in the UK, you're going to be subject to inheritance tax. So we actually run those kind of funds, but in an offshore jurisdiction, which benefits a non-domiciled US investor or non-domiciled UK investor. What I mean by that is that our funds are roll-up funds, which means the interest and the dividends of the fund are automatically reinvested into the NAV, which is your net asset value, your share price. The share price gets higher. So for South African, you're not going to pay tax on the interest and dividend portion of your investment, only a CGT when you sell. So um, South Africa, you've also got to look at where's the fund domicile. That's important, not just the 
um, the TER or the AMF of the fund. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry, continue. No, and also, you know, people look at, yes, the ETFs or the mutual funds have become a commodity, but you've also got to look at, is your fund actually tracking the index as close as it should be? So it's not just about the TER or five basis points or seven basis points or nine, but also about are they tracking the, the index as close as possible? So um, people just look at the price. They're not actually looking at the index tracking uh, firm as well. Thank you. Dawn, do you put your clients in the S&P 500 directly or indirectly at all? Um, yes, not not um, U.S. domicile because of the, the the you know the very real issues. If you're not a, a U.S. resident, um, you know investing in U.S. But there are plenty of ways to do that. Most of my clients do it through Switzerland, um, and you know we we use a number of ETFs, um, including the sort of Vanguard, BlackRock, those sort of things at different portions at different times. Um, you know, the, uh, obviously the, the place to be, you know, if you, with 2020, excuse the pun, hindsight is, um, to have been in the NASDAQ rather than the S&P 500. But, um, obviously, you know, you still get that, that take exposure that has taken those, um, those, you know, numbers to, to those highs. I think, um, you know, the asset managers that, that I work with are probably, being a little bit more conservative on the um, equity side now that we've had the bounce back from from early lockdown. But, Thanks, um, Dawn. Absolutely. And Gina wants to know how much money do you realistically need to invest to start a decent portfolio of ETFs? Lisa, what do you think? Do you need twenty thousand rand, a million? Um, no, I would say we start fifteen hundred dollars, so it's about twenty thousand, just over. To get it's and also you see the, uh, no once off and then we don't do debit orders so you would add to that it's about fifteen hundred dollars per investment. You've also got to remember that it depends on the price of your share in dollars it's your prices are different to rand so you you're not going to you know some of our shares are sixteen they've actually been re, um, balanced so it's sixteen dollars a share on the MSCI world I think it's trading at now which it was about 11 just uh, when the market tanked. Uh, we were down like about 25% since March, and now it's come back to the same highs. Thanks. Dawn, would, do you have something to add to that about the, you know, the amount of money you need to get started? Um, you, you, know, um, uh, you know, how, you know, how, um, how much you put into investment is going to be dependent on your age and how much you – you put offshore. Now, obviously, you can start really cheap with, you know, some of the South African, you know, SA ETF and that kind of thing and actually get exposure to those offshore funds with much less than, you know, 20,000 rand or whatever. You can do that for as little as, you know, 1,000 rand a month or so. And I think that's a very good place to start um, is, you know, to, to start small at any age, you know, irrespective of, you know, whether you're in your 20s or whether you're in your 60s. Is to to put start putting money locally until you build up the critical mass, and then you can start going, um, you know, the the route of local local people like Lisa, or um, you know, taking it physically offshore. You know, my preference, I think, if you can get 
a um, a critical mass to take offshore. You know, probably about 100,000 rand also is is to actually take it out of the country and invest it from there. Thank you. And then Carl has a question, and he says he realizes it's a difficult question. He says, overseas investments, which is better, the UK or the USA? So by that, I'm assuming he means where should you sort of diversify geographically with funds first in the US or the UK? Uh, and perhaps there's a there's a fund that allows for a bit of diversification of both regions. Lisa, what are your opening thoughts on that question? I would recommend, as I said, a building block, the foundation of your investment solutions is definitely the, uh, the global equity or MSCI world. So if you look at the active fund managers, most of them are using that as their benchmark on their global solutions. So it's best to actually just invest in the benchmark. So the MSCI world is about 65% US and the rest, a bit of UK, Japan and the rest of the European countries. So Thank you. that's what I would suggest. Dawn, you and look like – oh, sorry, continue. I just want to make a, a point there, Jackie. There's a difference between an ETF, which is the exchange traded fund, which is regarded as a share, and a index tracker. The structure is different and the pricing and the way of trading is different. So most of our clients like the index tracking vehicle, um, it's a buy and hold the ETF is more for a trader. It's 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 more um, in and out day traders, and there's also actually a cost of stockbroking. Like on the index tracking side, you, uh, our funds you come in at NAV, so there's no cost of brokerage, and your bid off there's no bid offer spread. So what if if a client comes in and buys, and the client comes and redeems the same day, you get the same price. Whereas on the ETF there is a spread. It trades during the, during the day, and you get different prices. And you can't get fractional units on an ETF. So you've also got to understand the structure of the funds you're investing in as well. Thank you. That's very useful information, Lisa. Thank you. And this, this brings us to James's question. He says, what do your guests think about opening a brokerage account and buying the 10 biggest holdings of a strong performing fund? Surely that would be a much cheaper way of doing it, he says. Lisa, would you I like actually, to just pick up on that briefly? I think actually not. I think we've actually got a very nice fund. Uh, it's an ETF listed uh, in the stock exchange, the LSE. It's called the Mega Trend. So the uh, the ticker symbol is ITEC, and it's um, it basically covers all the top AI disruptive companies. And that's done. Well, I don't. Uh, past performance is no indicative of future performance. But a lot of our clients are using that just to get exposure to the different AI disruptive um, technology companies and like Tesla's in there, Zoom's in there. It's got eight sub-themes. So it's genomics, it's cybersecurity, cloud computing, um, it's future cars, social media. So that's a nice building block. And then if you want to take a punt on a particular Amazon or Apple, then buy one or two shares. But brokerage, those fees are actually cheaper to buy the fund or the ETF structure than buying 10 different companies. Thank you. And then Cole wants to know, Dawn, can you leave the money overseas or do you have to bring it back? This is if you have an overseas bank account. So can you invest in these yes. various options? Yes, you leave it there. You know, um, the way our exchange controls are at the moment, and I mean, I was having this discussion earlier today with a client, 
let's face it, if they can change the the prohibition and uh, liquor laws in 30 seconds, do you think they can't do that with forex either? Um, you know, at the moment you can take out um, 10 million a year, you know, with Reserve Bank approval and SARS clearance. Um, but once it's over there, it stays over there. Um, Thank you. Know, you. And you know, there are tax implications. You have to disclose any interest and dividends unless, you know, you've been smart and, and done what Lisa told you so that it's roll-up funds. But uh, no, you stay there. Thank you. And then Richard has a follow-up question for you, Lisa. How do you find out where your funds are domiciled? Do you look for You've that got to ask the No, it should be on the prospective or the fact sheet. So our funds, we've got funds in, in Mauritius and the underlying fund with State Street is in Luxembourg. So those are offshore jurisdictions. It should tell you on the fact sheet if it's a U.S. domiciled fund. So the Vanguard, they do, you've got to actually speak like BlackRock. They have two different funds. They have also funds in, I think, in Dublin or Ireland. And then they've got the U.S. counterpart as well, Vanguard as well. So you just make sure when you buy the fund, the domicile of the fund should be on the, uh, the prospectus that you're buying. Thank you. And then here's another question for you, Lisa. Bongani wants to know, how do your funds compare with the Satrix-type vehicles for offshore exposure? What is the difference? Why would you choose your vehicle versus a local provider, do you think? Well, would an offshore person use a local provider or an international provider? So would a person in the UK want to use a local provider of an offshore fund or an offshore provider? Does that answer okay. the question? So uh, you maybe you could elaborate no, a bit. Okay. <laughs> I have to be different. Would no. Like uh, yeah. You would yeah. go to the experts. So okay. in the index tracking, where the big, where the experts on offshore investing internationally. So your BlackRock, your um, Vanguard or State Street, those are the three out of the five big firms. Three of them are index tracking firms. So a person in the U.S. wouldn't use a Satrix fund for international exposure. Surely they would use an international fund. Thanks. Dawn, what is your um, opinion on that? Um, I, I'd much rather see um, offshore money where possible actually leaving the country and going offshore um yeah. quite frankly you know that's um rather than buying an uh, you know global msci index here i am um, if you if you've got the critical mass i'd much rather uh, my client took it up thank you very much and then i just want to elaborate on that um it depends on, I think the funds here are RAND denominated. So you've got to look at a RAND denominated or whether they're offshore denominated funds. So I concur with, with Dawn. I prefer clients having hard currency, myself included. So I wouldn't want a RAND denominated fund of the same if you can get an offshore fund. So that's, I think, what Dawn was saying. Because once your money has gone offshore, and say your kids are going to be educated overseas, you can actually use that money to help with education. But random-nominated funds have to come back to South Africa. Thank you. And then here's another so that's question. What I was okay, just, just picking up again on that world index, uh, Ananda is wanting a bit more of a steer on how do you find 
an index tracker from the various service providers. So she mentions Easy Equity, she mentions Signia, but obviously there are a number of product providers. So how, how, what are the kinds of questions that you need to think about when you decide which one you're going to go for? Dawn, do you want uh, to take that question? Um, you know, I, I I think your financial advisor would be able to steer you in the right direction in, you know, because they will know what your entire wealth portfolio looks like. Um, they can then make recommendations on how much you should expose to offshore and how to do it. You know, that that's our ev everyday job rather, rather than, you know, if, if you go straight to a provider, they're obviously going to steer you to to their product in whatever way, shape or form. And for the man on the street to actually, you know, try and get some kind of independent advice they're not going to be able to get it from the providers. You need to get somebody who's outside of it to say, okay, this is your portfolio. I think we take your, your offshore and we put it here or we buy that or we place it here or we take it out. Thank you. And uh, then uh, Peter says it's crystal ball gazing time. Can you please give him <laughs> an idea of what's going to happen to gold? So we were talking about this earlier, Dawn. I know that you feel quite strongly about gold mining companies. Perhaps you could just sketch out the risks and, and potential returns when you're looking at gold. Um, yeah, you know, obviously um, a lot of my clients, and especially my offshore clients, have been had uh, fairly significant gold exposure for most of this year and, and towards the end of last year as well. Um, and, you know, coming into the, the lockdown, you know, it's a safe haven. That's why everybody's rushing towards gold at the moment. Uh, so, you know, when every, when everybody's question is, you know, <laughs> ah, I need to buy gold, you know, that, you know, the, the stable doors open, the horse is bolted, you know, there's not that huge up potential that, that's gone, you know, smarter people than you actually took advantage of that. So, ah, shame. But, um, what you know when it comes to to gold mines i you know there are so many other issues including strikes and labor and labor costs and shut down a mine because of covid and all sorts of other issues involved in gold mining in fact any of the commodities mining that really um you know it's it's foolhardy to try and pick a you know gold mine share or whatever else it is to give you that um, leveraged exposure to gold, you're much more likely to get your fingers burnt, in my opinion. Thanks. Lisa, do you offer exposure to gold through any of your products there? The MSCI World actually will have. So the MSCI World, which is your global equity fund, which is 1,600 shares, and some of the holdings have underlying gold um, companies in it. So you would get exposure there. That, to me, is the best foundation for a client who wants exposure offshore it's it's steady eddy you know it's not going to shoot the lights out so if you believe like i think we had a question on us technology you would take a cloud computing we've got that etf or a itech as i said or but you need to build your foundation offshore it's your it's your bricks and mortar and the bricks and mortar is 1600 your msci world 1600 shares it's across regions and sectors um, you know, as, you, as Dawn said, you don't know if gold's going to outperform or you don't know, you know, people are worried about the U.S. or where they put the money in the U.S. or U.K. or Japan. I think the MSCI world gives you, it's 23 developed countries and across most sectors as well. 
and it's got a 64% weighting in the U.S. So for someone who doesn't have any offshore exposure, I think it's a good building block. Great. Thanks. And then, yeah. You know, when we're we're talking uh, about gold, and if you want exposure to gold, and, and in my opinion, mining gold mining companies is not the way to go about it. But in the same breath, I would also say that physical gold, owning Krugerrands or something like that, is also not the way to go about it. There's some very good offshore um, and local gold ETFs trackers um, where you can get exposure to the movement in the gold price without the physical risk of of actually owning the stuff. Thank you. And then, Lisa, just picking up, you touched briefly on tech funds. Um, Stuart had had a question, If, and I'm assuming he's speaking about himself. If one had invested successfully in U.S. technology funds and one is getting concerned that the market is going too high, how do you preserve this gain? What are, what are your views on timing the market or well, getting in and out of these funds? <laughs> Hindsight is 2020 vision, as we would yeah. say. Um, if you're nervous, uh, I can't, you know, I'm not a financial advisor, but for myself, I believe in sometimes uh, locking in your gains. So maybe sell the profit, um, and and then you, you know, so say you put in a hundred thousand, it's moved to 120. Maybe take the profit of 20,000 and then redeploy it in more of a sector that's been underperforming that will have growth issue. You know, it's got more growth. So maybe a, f- a fund that's got exposure. Uh, maybe it's a tech fund. We've got as well the Arctic as well. That's got exposure to China and a bit of Europe. So it's not just US weighted. So I would take, you know, if you're nervous, it's sometimes we don't do anything. I've done mistakes like that as well. I've, I've, I've don't act. I let it run and, and then you lose some of your profit. Is is It's not such a bad thing to take some profit and then redeploy it in an underperforming sector that has got more exposure internationally. And then Thank I just wanted you. to Don't just tell you something, Jackie. There is like a, people also know when they ask me about the different index trackers, you get different types. You get a, a tracker that's full replication, the sampling, and then there's also that synthetic. So you've also got to ensure your tracker probably the best is full replication. So they're buying all the shares in a particular benchmark. Can you just elaborate on what the other two are just so that people know what the differences so, are? So no, because there's different kinds of index trackers. So I know it's, a, it's not actually as simple as just buying a passive structure. You've got actually, it's quite a complicated um, way of investing. You've got to understand. So full replication is what I think most of the index tracking do on the simple um, trackers. So that means they buy all the shares as per their benchmark. So an S&P 500, your index tracker will have all the shares in the S&P 500. A sampling just takes, like, say, 10% of that sector is in, say, consumers. They'll take a sampling of that. And synthetics are more due derivatives. So you've got that's more risky. So you've got to ensure that there's full replication on your index tracker as well. It should say on the prospectus or the fact sheet. Thank you. And then Dawn, Etienne wants to know, I'm a pensioner and I have a living annuity. How can I invest in ETFs in my living annuity? Do that on on most lists. Um, you know, if you're with an insurer, then good luck to you. But um, most of the lists will have um, a at least a unitized ETF, which is a little bit more expensive, but it, you know, it's along the same lines. I mean, 
For example, um, at Investec, there are a number of unitized ETFs that you could switch your portfolio into. You can, um, with with a pension, with an annuity, and I, I assume it's a, a living annuity, you know, move it to somebody like um, SA ETF. Um, they, they do have a life license. You can, in fact, put your entire, you know, portfolio in there. But, um, you know, that's then you're going to have to find that secret source I was talking about. You know, what portion do you put into into bonds, into gold, into the other asset classes apart from from equity and, of course, offshore? So probably um, if it's not on a LISP license, to put it on a LISP license, you can do that, you know, via a tax-free um, transfer. That's fairly easy. And then um, look at having a, a core as, as an ETF and satellites for the the secret source, the other the other asset classes to get the yield. Because basically, when you're a pensioner, that is the most important thing: is you want your portfolio to yield your income that you want every month. And part of that yield mm -hmm. has to go back into the fund so that it continues to grow and so it can sustain your pension for your rest of your life. So, um, you know, it's uh, you 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 do need proper advice for for that kind of thing but you can do it thank you and then here's a, another related question mark wants to know if capital preservation is a primary objective while simultaneously requiring a regular dividend income flow and locating the investment offshore what would the two ladies recommend so just in broad brushstrokes because obviously you know yeah. financial advice is very individual but in broad brushstrokes what maybe what are your building blocks for that dawn would you like to answer that well, one first yeah, my my thoughts on capital preservation have actually evolved over time. In other words, they've changed over over time. And certainly, you know, 13 years ago, um, we didn't consider capital preservation quite as important. And we say to a client, right, you know, we'll get this capital to last you 20 years. And, you know, when you turn 85, I'm not going to be around, so I don't care. Actually, not what you said, but that's, you know, the implicit argument there. My feeling now is that with, with pension funds, the capital preservation is of utmost importance because you don't know how long the person is going to live. And I never want to sit in front of a pensioner having, you know, being of that certain age almost myself. Um, and, and say to them at age 85, you know, sorry, nothing left. So what it does mean, unfortunately, when you are talking to clients, um, is that their drawdown um, has to be less um, so that part of the yield that's coming out of, um, out of that investment can go to paying them their pension. But, but a chunk of it actually has to go um, back into the fund. And at the moment, we're you know, trying to keep our clients to a, a drawdown of less than 5% so that the rest can go back into the fund. And let's face it, even at 5% at the moment, it's a struggle to find enough of a yield to, to put back into the investment. Thank you. And then here's a, a comment from Tom, actually. He says, thanks. He's really finding all your insights very useful from both ladies, he says. So moving on to um, another question from somebody who wants to remain anonymous. He says, for three and a half million Rand post-retirement annuity from an RA. Would it be best to take a single life annuity for the full amount? He says he's 62. Or the, take the third that can be taken out tax-free and invest this portion offshore. What are your views on, on, on that allocation? Perhaps, Dawn, we should uh, ask you for that answer. Well, the simple answer is absolutely. 
Um, but obviously there's more nuanced approach. You know, once you know more about the client, um, you know, will the living annuity uh, give him enough of a pension to live on here? Because there's no point in it not giving him enough of a pension and uh, he's put half of it overseas, he has to bring it back because he can't live off it. Um, but, you know, if, if the two-third living annuity that um, comes out of the pension is enough, um, to sustain him locally, then absolutely take the rest offshore. And the other thing to remember is with a living annuity, and this is something that I've been in discussion with a lot of my clients who are retirement annuities at the moment. Retirement annuities are regulated, um, you know, so that you can only invest a smallish portion offshore. As soon as it's in a living annuity, you can actually invest that uh, up to 100% in offshore funds, oh, rand denominated, but offshore funds anyway, mm. um, which you can't in a in a retirement annuity. I know that Magnus is is also quite big on this approach at the moment. So um, if the two thirds of that money is enough to produce your pension without eroding the capital, then go for it. Take the rest offshore. Thank you. And uh, here are some questions for Lisa that I don't know if they kind of look related to me. So Lorraine wants to know if your investment funds allow the funds from off offshore to stay offshore, what are the tax yes. implications? And then Charles also wants to know once the funds are offshore, if these are sold, where is tax on the capital gain paid? So perhaps just in broad brushstrokes, how the tax works. Well, as I said before, um, you've got to look at the structure of the funds. So the different fund houses on the index tracking. So make sure that you take a, a tracking vehicle that's domiciled offshore and probably roll up. So your your interest and dividends are reinvested automatically. It'll be there will be a CGT. It depends on where you're living at the time mm -hmm. you redeem. So if you're in South Africa, you would have to pay CGT on the difference on the portfolio. So there'll be a CGT event. Always. Thank you. And then also Cheryl Lee says, why should we not invest in the U.S.? And she says, I'm asking about the tax implications, please. Well, I'm not. A, a, yes, I'm just saying um, maybe Dawn's probably better on the tax. Okay. Just know that if you invest in a, in a U.S. vehicle in your personal name, if you die, you will be subject to inheritance tax and safe duty in the U.S., Am I, that's that's what I understand. Yes. So and that's why there, most there, of the clients. Um, as a, if you're a non-US resident, um, and you you know, and particularly if you're non-US resident and not resident in the US, and you try you know opening a bank account, investing out of there, it can be a nightmare. Um, even with clients that we have at the moment, where they've got some money that's been in the US because that's where they were at what some stage, actually moving it is even moving it maybe to Switzerland or something becomes um, an absolute nightmare. You know, the the they've become their banking system and their finance system have become very insular. And also, you've got reporting issues like factor. I know. Um, so the you know people the US does sound cheap on the pricing as I said to you like five basis points on the S and P 500 and different funds, but I think we've got a business in the US and office there. I think the US funds are predominantly for US investors the way they've structured and their tax implications. And as Dawn said, it is actually quite a paperwork nightmare actually to invest in US funds to be honest. 
Thank you. And then Bongani says, Hi, Lisa. Thanks for great insights. I have just had a look at your global equity index fund in US dollars uh, and the EAC is 70%. Is that the total fees charged to the client or are there some additional fees? So perhaps you could just elaborate on that. Sure. Thanks for looking at the website. Um, We've got uh, the funds we normally rebate back to the broker. So if you're a registered broker or financial advisor, uh, the, the rebate back is 30 basis points on the platforms. So uh, the total expense ratio on our side is actually 30 basis points, which is the annual management fee, AMF, and then there's a custody fee of 10 basis points. So the total expense ratio with a financial advisor or the EAC or the TER would be 70, but that includes a financial advisor's fee as well. Thank you. And then Shannon has a question which I think Dawn might be well-placed to answer. Uh, she says, there appears to be an emphasis on investing offshore even for a retired individual. As a retired person invested, my future needs are here in South Africa. I have a constant concern that the additional layer of currency risk could work against me if the currency strengthens. What are your views? So I'm assuming she's worried that you could go offshore at the wrong time now. You know, I, I think... That's that's why, you know, with with financial advice, you know, we we never give sort of one word answers. Um, you know, you've got to know the client. You've got to know how much they've got, what their needs are here, um, you know, what other investments they've got um, and 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 to meet those expectations as well. Um, because, you know, I, I agree if you if you're here. You're not intending to emigrate at any time, even if, you know, things get really bad here. And, um, you know, the the RAND is pretty good, despite our inflation and everything else, of actually keeping its purchase value. So you then, you know, if the, the client says, look, I'm not even going to be traveling much. And, you know, I, I you know, if the RAND you know, depreciates, I mean, people... People in Zimbabwe, they're, they're people who are still there in Zimbabwe and you can still, you know, manage to get by. And it's th- then you can say, right, then we will um, sort of uh, put a, a local portfolio together. But, you know, even within a local portfolio, particularly within um, local equity, there's a huge exposure in, in local equity to offshore anyway. You you know, you, can all, you can't get away from it. You know, the... The NASPES exposure alone, you know, never mind the bulletins and the Richemonts and, and all these others that are quoted on our, our stock exchange that are seen as a, a, a rand hedge. And the other thing that, you know, although you can become very insular and say, look, I, I actually don't care about the depreciation, appreciation, things like that, is that a chunk of the things we use on a daily basis, particularly petrol, mm-hmm. I suppose, but a whole lot of other so things, true. you know, tea, fridges computers, everything else, are imported, and they're going to be imported in a hard currency. Um, and so when you want to replace those cars is, is another example. So, you know, you want to be able to at least hedge that depreciation in one way, shape, or form. And, you know, if, if you have enough money and you are going to be traveling and you've got enough to put it offshore, um, then, you know, t- then take it offshore. But, um I, I, for one, you know, and, you know, obviously being a bit older than that, you've just, I, you know, I remember when it was, you know, three rand to the, you know, two rand to the dollar, you know, and look where we are now. So, you know, and we, we've never, you know, there've been ups and downs, but it's been really at the end of the day, 
you know, we just continue to appreciate. And the reason we continue to do appreciate, mainly apart from other countries not liking us very much, is that um, our inflation is way above everybody else's than UK and the US. And, you know, they've brought their inflation down to one or two percent. We haven't. And so that that impetus alone is going to result in the the rent appreciating. What do you think, Lisa, of that question? Just Can I, so, yeah, um, I think people are focused on the Rand dollar exchange, which shouldn't only be the focus for going offshore. It's also getting to companies that we are not available on the stock exchange locally. Amazon, think about the companies that you're using, Facebook, Google. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not reason just to go offshore because of Rand hedge. It's also to get into companies, growth companies, that we have no access to on our local stock exchange. So that for me, actually, you know, they, they said South Africa makes up 1% of the global economy. And, you know, if you lo ask local fund managers here, they're finding it difficult to find value of the companies here. You're getting into companies that we have no access here, healthcare, all the big healthcare companies that have seen a big growth during COVID. Um, and also, you know, what's dri dri driving the companies overseas is a lot of the consumer. We don't, you know, with unemployment here, we're not going to get big growth in our in our companies because of high unemployment, and the consumer is not going to drive your local companies, which you're going to get offshore. So I don't think you can only look at rand dollar exchange. I think you're going to look at what companies you're getting. Amazon, Google, Alphabet, Alibaba. You're not getting that on your local exchange. And so, that's where the Anna, is come. so Anna, Anna says, zooming out a bit from our individual perspectives, by collectively putting money into the global companies via index trackers, are we not making the biggest companies and countries bigger and stronger and weakening all the rest? And then connected to this, Michelle wants to know, what about emerging market tracking indexes going forward? So in other words, isn't there a case for diversifying into uh, developing nations rather than just the US? Uh, Lisa, would you like to take that one? Sure. We've actually got, so our fund managers, what I do recommend is to buy, you can get the ACWI, which is in all countries, which would take emerging markets and developed. But that actually um, index the tracking area is quite high because your emerging market is more illiquid, doesn't have the liquidity of a de developed market. So what I would suggest to someone is to have an asset allocation, say you've got 100,000 rand, puts, you could put some into the emerging markets and then summing to an MEC World Vision developed markets and not just actually buy an index that tracks both because the tracking error on an ACWI is actually much higher than on the two individual. I think we've lost Lisa. Yeah, I think the benchmark on the active fund managers. Okay, sorry, we just lost you there, Lisa. Um, okay, can you hear me now? Yes, we can hear you now. Uh, David says he can actually remember the rand being one rand to one dollar twenty-five. So um, that's a given indication of what people are quite tuned into the rand. And then Nidish wants to know what is the six-month outlook for the rand dollar exchange rate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if we I can have call it the terror reader. There should be a yeah. terror reader. No one knows. Okay, so uh, we're getting, we're coming to close to the end Actually, of the webinar. We're not going, yes, sorry. Jack, sorry, Jackie. Normally people look at the RAND, what's happening locally, I think, 
to see the dollar rand exchange. I've heard from a lot of the asset, uh, asset managers and some of the economists, you actually got to look at the dollar. So when, actually funny enough, I know like the last couple of weeks ago, the rand strengthened and everyone was saying, I don't understand why the rand was strengthening, what was going on here, it didn't make sense. Um, it's the dollar weakness. So if you will look at, you can't look at the performance of the rand, what's happening here, you've got to look at the performance of the dollar. So you've got to track your dollar actually to understand the performance of the rand. Am I That's, correct? Dawn? Yes. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. I mean, if you, um, you know, I, I think one index that, that I watch quite carefully is the Dixie, uh, because the Dixie will actually tell you the relative strength of the the US dollar. And I, I think the, the the weakness over the last couple of weeks is probably also a little bit behind um, what is happening with gold, because gold is obviously in dollars. Uh, the dollar's been weakening. So part of the uplift in gold is probably um, part of that is, is dollar weakness. So um, I always look at the, the Dixie at the moment. I think it's sitting at around about 95. I mean, it's even in recent times, you know, so early in the year, it was as high as 102. Um, and once, you know, sort of over 100, it's probably, you know, over, um, it's too strong. And once it starts getting below 96, it's starting to really weaken. And that's what, you know, you can see the trend quite clearly if you look at that, that graph. Thank you. Well, thank you to both of you for joining us and thank you to everybody who attended the webinar today. Just to recap, our guests today are Dawn Riddler. Dawn Riddler has a, a, a practice in Johannesburg and Lisa is with um, Hins Global. And as you can see, she's also got a, a certified financial planner and um, an admitted attorney. So thank you to both you, Lisa, and to you, Dawn, for joining us today. We really appreciate your insights. Thanks for the time and giving us the opportunity. And I'm happy Thanks to so take any questions.